Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is the word of the Lord. So I have one particular aim, and I believe it is the aim of this passage, is to show that those who delight in God's word are sustained in every season of life. That, that God's word is not just a wonderful thing for 15 minutes a day to be experienced or to cause the warm and fuzzies, which are so enjoyable from time to time, but that God's word is actually for much more than just small devotional times, but rather it is the means by which God sustains his people. That God's word, as seen in this psalm, is like a river, and that those who are taking their delight in God's word, those who are watered by that river, will stand with total confidence at the end. The picture that the psalmist paints is this man who delights in God's word and meditates upon God's word, those two being two sides of the same coin, heads and tails of the soul matter, which is enjoying God's word such that you return to it over and over again, and that that will become for that person like a river, like which waters a tree, and that tree stands against the storms of life. Indeed, finally, at the end, the psalmist paints a picture that there is a judgment which is going to come, that all the trees of the field were, as it were, they would have an ax laid at their roots, and that man would not be cut down. So that, I believe, is the theme of this psalm. The psalmist wants to show that those who delight in God's word will stand forever. And therefore, I want to look at three main ideas that the psalms, as we've been looking at this year, are meant for instruction. Many of us, when we come to the psalms and we read through them, we see that the majority of the psalms, the vast majority, are praises to God. They are songs of thanksgiving, songs of deliverance, songs of lament, But the Psalms are not just songs said to God, they also are instructions from the psalmist or God the Holy Spirit to his people. And so we first want to look at this very first Psalm as the introduction to the entire book of Psalms and see how that understanding that this Psalm is supposed to teach us something will lead to how we read it. We have to read the Psalm in accordance with the purpose for which the psalm was written. I want to look then at the question of who is this blessed man 
other translations describe this man as a happy man. Happy is the man, or blessed is the man. Joyful is the man. And I want to ask the question, who is that man? Is this describing a type of man or a particular man? And then finally, I want to see how not only does it describe a particular man, but by faith in that particular man, it also is supposed to instruct us. So the psalm is going to teach us something, but what it teaches us to do is not just how to be that man, but it teaches us who that man is. And then, only then, can we read it in order to learn how to be like that man. That's what I believe Psalm 1 is intended to do. The reason why is the Psalms are a collection of God's writings, God working by the Holy Spirit through various people, David, Asaph, etc. And these Psalms are a collection of songs and instructions for the people of Israel to use at a time in their worship. These Psalms were not just read for private devotional use. The Psalms were also given to his people in order to cause them to worship together, to to use these materials in order that they would hear them at the same time. This particular psalm, the Psalm 1 and its neighbor, Psalm 2, in a very special way, actually introduced not only the entire book of Psalms, but this entire portion of God's word. If you remember the story in Luke 24, when Jesus took the disciples, uh, met the disciples on the road to Emmaus as they were leaving Jerusalem, he began to explain to them the scriptures, and Luke records it, beginning with Moses and the prophets and the Psalms. When when Luke writes this way, he does not mean that Jesus only referred to the Psalms and not also Proverbs, but rather, or Ecclesiastes, or, but rather Jesus used all of those materials which were commonly called the Psalms. The Jews at Jesus' day used the word Psalms to describe the Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Solomon, Ecclesiastes, and I, I think one or two other books. The point is, they saw a tripartite or a threefold division of God's word. There were the writings of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and then the histories, the prophets, and then the Psalms. And so when this Psalm is set at the beginning of this section, it's not just describing the Psalms, it's also describing all of the wisdom literature in the Bible. The themes, therefore, within this Psalm are supposed to shape our expectations of what the Psalms will be. And at the very beginning, we see an amazing aspect is this Psalm is not a song to God. Rather, it's an instruction to God's people. If you took Psalm 1 and sang it to God, you would have to change it quite a bit for it to make sense. God doesn't need to know how the righteous is supposed to walk. We do. So the point is that the Psalms at Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 are putting forth a vision of a blessed man and an anointed king. And the point of these two Psalms coming at the beginning of the book of Psalms is it's to shape our expectations. These are not merely songs of praise. The Psalms are also sayings and instructions. That is to say, applications of God's word to various parts of life. When you look through the Psalms, especially the personal songs of lament, you see how David or another psalmist is wrestling with the faithfulness of God being real in the midst of totally dark and despairing circumstances. 
The reason these Psalms are written is to show us how to stay faithful to God's law in the midst of life. And so you can consider the Psalms as being a tutorial or a school of personal application of the works of Moses. That is, the Psalms are supposed to train you how to walk with your heart before the Lord in the light of the various storms of life. David is writing these Psalms and the other psalmists with him, and they are answering the law of God in the Torah. They, that is, the law of God in the Torah is describing what God's law is, and the Psalms are supposed to teach us how to live out that law. And so at the very beginning, this first psalm is teaching us what to do. It's teaching us how to live as one who has the law. The psalmist in this psalm, David, begins teaching by showing how an Israelite should live his life. If you think about the context of an Israelite reading Psalm 1, he would have read the psalms as the application of all that was described. In the law of Moses, we have the commandments for life, and the Psalms are then showing how, what sort of heart a man is to have while living out that law. That is the point of the Psalms. In fact, when David focuses, as we're about to see in the next few verses, by focusing so strongly on what the blessed man does not do, David actually is beginning to warn his hearers at the very first verse that there are a great many things which a person must be vigilant to not do, to, to stay away from. He says, blessed is the man, and then as soon as he says that, he doesn't begin with positive commands, but he begins with negative commands. Blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, does not sit in the seat of scoffers. So we have at the very first verse a great divorce or a dichotomy, a great division between the one man who is blessed. Blessed is the man who walks not, and then we have three series of prohibitions and groups. What David is doing here in these verses is powerful and it's profound. He goes on to describe this man as the one who has his delight in the law of the Lord and on his law he meditates day and night. If you've been with us during a sermon on the Psalms, you may remember the phrase merism. And this is a very helpful uh, literary device that the psalmist will often say that uh, that someone does something by day and by night, it's not saying that he did something for five minutes in one part of the day and five minutes at the night. Rather, by saying the phrase day and night, the psalmist, the writer, is saying that this is something that goes on all the time. When we are told to pray without ceasing, it doesn't mean to pray every minute for at least a second. It means to develop a lifestyle, to carry one's heart in a manner of prayer that's persistent. This man who meditates upon God's law does not just meditate on it in the morning and evening devotional. No, his meditation is on God's law at all times. The happy man here does not simply keep himself from sin, but actively takes joy in God's word. 
immediately when we think about this in the context of the law of the Lord, this begins to be very helpful because often we, as well as the Pharisees in Jesus' day, twist the law of God into thou shalt not alone. Rather, God's law positively commands us to do something. The happy man, the blessed man, is not just someone who comes to God's law to know what not to do, but rather he is positively giving himself to the delight of God's word. Again, the law of the Lord does not merely mean the law given through Moses. This is sometimes very difficult for us because we have... Uh, not been careful students of God's word, and we presume that the law of God was only given in the law that came through Moses. Now, I'm being very careful in not saying Moses' law, because it was God's law. It came through Moses. It was mediated or transmitted to Israel through Moses. However, we read in Genesis 26, verse 5, that God said, Abraham... 400 years before the giving of the law, obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So we know because Abraham was able to obey God's law 400 years before the giving of that code through Moses, that the law of Moses is not the central aim of verses like this. When we say the blessed man makes his delight in the law of God, of course it includes the ethical and judicial commands of the law of Moses, but that is not the sum of God's law. It is not the whole of God's law. God's law is known through his promises and through his prohibitions. The man who meditates on God's law day and night does not do so because of a mere duty, but rather he does so because of his delight. That is to say that the man who is going to fulfill God's law cannot fulfill God's law coming to God hoping to earn favor by doing the right things and not doing the wrong things. Rather, the one who comes to God must find in God's law, in his word, a delight, a treasure. You cannot do something day and night that you do not love. It is impossible to do that. And again, the broader context helps us. Because those who seek to apply God's law, David teaches them that if they want to do God's law, they cannot simply do so by strict adherence, but must do so with faithfulness. Jesus said in Matthew 23, 23, that the Pharisees had neglected the weightier measure or the, the more heavy parts of the law, which one of, one of which is faithfulness. Jesus doesn't mean just perpetually obeying, but rather keeping faith with the God who has made promises to his people. Therefore, if the law is to become my delight, I must find in it something delightful. That is to say that the law of God is not merely an external code. It must become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, something through which I meet with God so that I can find my delight and joy in it. Going on in verse three, David says, he is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season. I want you to, to picture, if you, if you want to close your eyes, you can, but I just want you to picture a tree by the bank of a river, and you, it can be whatever kind of fruit tree you want. Uh, I think the best fruit that happens on this continent, uh, besides cherries, are peaches, ripe in their season, somewhere in Georgia, 
somewhere ready to be harvested, it bears its fruit in its season. What happens when you get near that tree? You begin to smell the aroma of the fruit. You see that it has leaves and they're not withering away. He goes on to say, this tree, its leaf does not wither. That is, it doesn't shrivel. It's not affected by disease, which causes shriveling, or by the end of the season, which causes the leaves to fall. And in all that he does, he prospers. Verse four, the wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. One of the beautiful things that David is doing is he's using word pictures to cause us to be able to gain a sense of what he's saying. And he actually communicates far more deeply than if he just described it as this. The righteous people are steadfast in life and they never have great failings. No, he decided to use the words, he's like a tree planted by streams of water and his leaf doesn't wither and he stands unlike the wicked. Because this man delights in and meditates upon God's word, his life is therefore thoroughly sustained and filled with success in whatever he sets his hand to do. What a promise. If you are one who, as an Israelite, is wanting to keep God's law, you want to walk according to the way that God had given his people, you would eagerly jump at this and you would say, I want my delight to be in the law of the Lord. This person has a soul that is not parched, but rather has deep reserves of spiritual energy and bears fruit at the appropriate time. You see, it's not right for the peaches to be out early in the spring. They'll be destroyed by the summer heat, won't they? The peaches come and mature and fill at the appropriate time for harvest. He has fruit not in every season. He has fruit in the seasons. Is your life not bearing fruit right now? Perhaps you might not be in fruit-bearing seasons. Just a, just a thought there. It might be the th- that the vine dresser is still pruning you and you're not ready to bear fruit. The point is that this tree, contrasted with the wicked, who is driven away like the winds of, by the winds of life, this blessed and happy man stands strong and tall and proud. I had the privilege of going to a national park this week, we went for two days, well, three days with, with our kids. My wife and I took Susan and, and Lucy. And one of the things that we saw at Ledges, uh, which was a, a, a trail in the National Park, was a tree that had taken its roots and it had cast its roots about 10 feet over a boulder. And the tree was bent out into the sunlight so it could escape the shadows of the trees around it so it could find light. And that tree probably was four, maybe, maybe three and a half feet in, in diameter. Um, it was a huge, huge tree. And there was nothing, if that boulder moved, it probably is the case that that tree is holding the boulder in place at this point. The reason I'm bringing up this picture is just to to paint a picture of what I think David is getting at. If the river starts to overflow its banks, to abuse the metaphor here, I don't think this tree's moving easily. That's what the picture of this steadfast, happy, blessed man is. Closing his first part of his teaching, the psalmist then warns his hearers of two extremely divergent outcomes of life from a singular judgment. 
That is, the psalmist has woven a picture and now at the close of his teaching is beginning to explain a time in which there will be a judgment. Verse five, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. How many make up a congregation? More than one. I just want you to see that for a second. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, the wicked being many people, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. When God judges all men at the end of the age, he will knowingly approve of the way of that blessed and happy righteous man, but he will put an end to the ways of the wicked. Does your soul despair over things that are happening in our earth today? That the way of the wicked seems prosperous? That the way of the wicked seems exalted and celebrated in our land? The way of the wicked will perish. Keep that in mind. That's what David is telling his fellow Israelites. Don't give yourself to wicked ways. Your way will perish. All the deeds of every man on that day will be thoroughly laid bare and none will be able to hide from him. Again, I I bring up this idea that we saw last week with the heat of the sun. Even if you can hide from the shade or from the light of the sun in in the middle of the summer, you cannot escape its heat. How much more the, the wrath of the Almighty on the day of judgment. There will be a day, David is saying, where the wicked will not be able to stand anymore. But there will be a day when the righteous does stand. Therefore, those who walk according to their own way will not stand, but those who walk according to the way of the righteous will stand forever. And as an Israelite who is reading this psalm that David has penned, I would say, and I hope you would say, I want to know how to stand forever. I don't want to be like chaff, which if you don't know what chaff is, it's the, it's the shell of a grain of wheat that after the wheat is beaten and the grain taken away for good use in bread, the chaff is thrown up into the air and the wind just takes it away. The, picture between, the difference in the picture between a tree with its roots down deep into the banks of a river versus chaff which floats away at the breeze is stark in contrast. David's trying to say to us, you want to be like the tree. The question therefore is, who is this blessed man? When David says the blessed man or happy is he who, he is not using a verb or excuse me, a noun which can apply to all people. Rather, he is using a singular word. He is saying the man. Throughout this psalm, the psalmist has been wanting to see a, wanting us to see a great distinction between the righteous and the wicked. From the very first verse, this righteous man, who is an individual, is contrasted with many groups of wicked people. If you remember back to verse one, who walks not in the, and then he lists three groups of people. So not only do we have singular versus plural, we have singular versus groups of plural people. David is not simply describing in this way the relative rarity of good people, That is to say, occasionally you'll find a good person, but rather is telling us something absolutely profound about God's world and the sins of men. What he's doing here is he's saying to his readers who are being honest that you aren't the blessed man, 
because you have at one time been a part of these groups. David has not merely been instructing his people, his readers, how to be good Israelites, but by being a prophet has been giving a picture of how the true Israelite will live. David is therefore teaching his readers to look forward to the unveiling of the one who will fully and perfectly keep God's law. Therefore, the reader, the faithful reader of David's psalm, will join him in looking for the one who fulfills these traits perfectly. David is not just giving advice, he is doing that, but but he's also saying there is one who needs to come who will be this righteous man. We know through the New Testament that Jesus is the man who walked not in the counsel of the wicked. We know who the, who the righteous, happy, blessed man is. Jesus Christ never sinned. What a joy. I, if you are a redeemed child of God, one of your greatest longings should be, I hate the things that trap my soul in sin. The things which deceive me into giving into momentary, momentary passing pleasures. And one of the great joys for a Christian is seeing within Psalm 1 that Jesus is the man who is blessed. Hebrews 4.15 says, We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but rather one who in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. When we think about Jesus on the cross and after the resurrection as the one who defeated death, that is a wonderful thing to celebrate. But probably an equally great thing to celebrate is that Jesus defeated every single temptation that he ever faced. How did he do it? Well, we know how he did it because of the rest of this psalm. 1 Peter 2.22 says, He, Jesus, committed no sin neither was deceit found in his mouth. Have you ever told a lie? Maybe you're unwilling to admit that you've told a lie. Have you ever embellished a story to make you look good? I've done that. And if, if you ask the question, have you ever told a lie, and the person answers no, they've actually just done it again. Never was deceit found in Jesus Christ's mouth. He is the blessed, happy, joyful man. Throughout his entire earthly life, Jesus was devoted to loving God's law. I want to show very briefly in mentioning six, five or six ways that Jesus was this blessed man. When Jesus was 12, after the celebrating of the Passover, Jesus did not follow his parents back to their home But without asking, Jesus stayed in the temple for three days and he amazed all those who heard him expound the law. I don't know about you. Andy mentioned he wants the tapes from Emmaus. I want those tapes. (laughs) The reason being, in in those days, the the rabbis exchanged questions. We're going to reference a place here later in Mark when one of the Pharisees says, you have need of no one asking you any more questions. The reason why he says that is in those days, people would ask questions as the form of, form of education. For example, how can it be that God um, made the world in a great period of time if he then instituted the Sabbath as a weekly practice for us? That would be a question that you could ask a fellow Christian or theologian and they would have to give an answer for 
In fact, when we went through the process, both of Jason and I becoming elders, as well as John and uh, Anvesh going through their training, one of the ways that you pass the tests is you answer questions. And in those days, you didn't simply answer questions, you answered them and you posited a deeper question. That was the manner of teaching in those days. Jesus, as he is standing in the temple at 12 years old, is doing much more than what's, what's commonly called a bar mitzvah. He wasn't just expounding the law. He was asking the, que- the Pharisees the questions, which they probably never answered. The reason they never answered those questions is they could not, as it said of Stephen later in Acts, they could not wrestle with the manner of power that he was speaking with. I'm convinced, this is, I'm reading outside the text, but I'm just guessing that there were certain Pharisees who were there that day who never got over being shamed in the temple because he was powerfully demonstrating that they were not keeping the law of God out of faith, but they were keeping the law of God in order to rule over the people, to be masters of the word of God instead of having the word of God master them. I think that's where the animosity between the Pharisees and Christ really got its start when he was 12. After his baptism, when Jesus Christ entered the wilderness, he defeated the temptation of Satan three times. So again, remember the words of this psalm. There's going to be a man who's like a tree who's watered by a river. Jesus goes into a wilderness and defeats the temptation of Satan, and the gospel writers record three specific temptations. And in each temptation, he quotes from God's word. And it's very interesting to me that one of the temptations by which Jesus defeated Satan, as he's quoting it, he wasn't actually even quoting a prohibition. He's actually quoting in Deuteronomy 8, 3, and 4, he's quoting a simple historical sentence. And from that sentence, he derives a moral application. That is, Jesus was not just a student of the individual commands. He was a student of the whole sum and substance, the whole spirit of God's word, Jesus Christ loved. In every dispute with the Pharisees, Jesus was never confused or caught off guard, but answered their questions perfectly, both in the detail and in the spirit of the law. Every time the Pharisees gave to him a question, he responded with a better question, a better way of showing the hypocrisy in their own uh, approach. Many of you remember what what they said. Is it lawful to pay tribute to Caesar or not? How did he answer it? He answered it with a question. He said, let me see a denarius whose image is on it. Now that's not the end of Jesus' teaching because he's not only going to answer them in the detail, he's going to answer them in the spirit of their accusation, which was malicious. He then goes on, they say that it's, it's Caesar's image. He then goes on to say, render unto Caesar what is Caesar's and render unto God what is God's. Now at this point, Jesus does not examine or expound his teaching yet. The question left for the reader as a student of God's law, Jesus being a perfect rabbi, he then goes on to leave the, the application to his hearers. The thing that we're supposed to hear from Jesus' wonderful application of God's law is this, whose image is God on? It's us. 
That's the point of what Jesus is doing. He's positing a question back to the Pharisees to put his finger in their eye on their evil use of God's law. They want to know whether or not they're fulfilling the external code. Jesus is saying, you're not rendering to God your heart. You want to ask a question about paying money and you are keeping your heart far from Yahweh. That's what Jesus is doing as a masterful scribe of God's word. Further, being zealous for the purity of God's people, Jesus always taught openly and publicly, and he taught clearly and with full conviction. In Matthew 5 through 7 on the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is taking the law of Moses and he's moving through it verse by verse, idea by idea, and applying it to people, saying, you heard it was said to not murder, but I tell you, whoever is angry in his heart with his brother. Jesus is loving God's law and therefore he's lovingly applying it to his people. Even to the end of his life, he understood how God's word prophesied concerning his own death and therefore willingly obeyed. In Hebrews 10, 5 and 7, we hear that when Christ was coming into the world, he said, you have not desired sacrifices, but a body you have prepared for me. Of me, it is written in the scroll of your book, He found in God's law not just merely the external code, he also found every prophecy concerning himself. And he didn't just know it, he allowed it to become the way he directed his life. So purely that he was able by the use of God's law to understand the necessity of his own death. That is, the Hebrew writer speaking by the Spirit is applying a psalm to Jesus Christ, giving a picture of what it was like in the heart of Jesus, that Jesus knew the will of the Father, and therefore when he went to die, he didn't go to die without any confidence, but saw it in God's word. What an amazing perspective on the importance of God's word. In every season, Jesus Christ was sustained by God's word and it gave him fruit in every place and in everything that he set his hand to do. From the miracle at the wedding of Cana to the Roman centurion whose child was raised from the dead to the Syrophoenician woman who he called out of adultery and into truth and righteousness to the apostle Paul who was after Jesus Christ's ascension, in every situation, Jesus powerfully saved and powerfully converted hearers of his words. Against all demonic powers, every sickness, all false teachings, every other religious system and superstition, Jesus Christ reigns supreme. In Acts 10, verse 38, we hear a description of how God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. He went about doing good and healing all those who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. I love those words. Those are precious words because in everything Jesus Christ does, he prospers. He's the man in Psalm 1 especially at the cross, as Jesus Christ completed payment, he said against the guilt which had formerly hung over God's household, it is finished. For as the angel told Joseph, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I'm beginning to look at Matthew one twenty one, which I just quoted, you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. I'm beginning to count that as one of the most precious verses in the New Testament. 
because it does not say that Jesus Christ will open up a way of salvation for his people. It says he will save his people from their sins. He accomplished it. In everything he does, he prospers. Jesus did not complete the cross and give up his life to the Father, entrusting his spirit to God in that moment, wondering whether he was done. He knew it was finished and declared it as such so the apostles could hear and write it down for us. Though showing forth the glories of Christ is the chief goal of this psalm, those who find him here ought to imitate him. I want to bring a slight corrective to my preaching over the years. And it's this, that too often we have left God's word Christocentric and not sought to apply to ourselves through both preaching and through our reading of how we are supposed to, by being united by faith in Jesus Christ, therefore imitate him. There is a great difference between Christocentric preaching and Christomonic preaching. And by that I mean where Christ is the only thing. I don't want to know how to be the blessed man. I just want to know how Jesus already did it. I don't need to know. That's not the way to read Psalm 1. This is why I'm saying I want to bring a slight corrective is because if we have found Jesus Christ in Psalm 1, we therefore ought to imitate him. Nay, we are obligated to imitate him. We are to see how Jesus Christ was our perfect atonement and the perfect true Israelite, which we could never hope to be. And by faith in him being recreated by the Holy Spirit, we now have the joy and the privilege of trying to run after him. One of the great titles of Jesus Christ in the Puritan writings is the mediator, that he is one who mediates the glory of God to to his people, that, that we come to the Father through Jesus Christ. But another great title that the Puritans and Reformed theologians so wonderfully used is the forerunner of God's people. The reason Christ was baptized is that all of God's people would be baptized into him. Likewise, when Jesus Christ ascends, Peter says that the Lord Jesus has received the Holy Spirit, which he has poured out upon his people. Jesus Christ is not merely the mediator, satisfying the wrath of God and pouring out grace upon his people. He also is their head, and the body ought to grow up into fullness into the head. He is our forerunner, and therefore he runs ahead of us where we cannot go and opens up a way which we ought to follow. Coming again to the end of this psalm, as we've been working through the psalm, applying it to Jesus, we again are confronted by the difference between the one man and the many. At the end of Psalm 2, which I said earlier is a couple with Psalm 1 in being the introduction to the Psalms, it says at the final verse of that other half of the introduction, we hear this phrase, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. So Psalm 1 begins with blessed is the man, and then it describes the man who perfectly enjoys and delights in and fulfills God's word. And then Psalm 2 describes the atonement, or excuse me, the anointed one, and the Lord's Christ, that is Yahweh's king that he's going to install. And then at the final verse of Psalm 2, it answers the beginning verse of Psalm 1. Blessed is the man, and then it says, blessed are all those who take refuge in him. 
Psalm 1 and 2 are introducing to us the point of the Psalms being to find and trust in and follow after Jesus Christ. Coming to this end, we see two divergent paths between the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked. Since the Lord knows the way of the righteous, we therefore ought to seek to imitate Christ in that way, in that manner of life. Jesus, in referring to this psalm, promised in John 7 that all those who come to him would never thirst again, but have rivers of living water coming out from their inmost being. This, this, this takes place at the Feast of Booths in which Jesus stands up to all Israel who would have known Psalm 1 by heart. And he declares to them, if you want to be that blessed man, if you want to be that happy man, come to me to drink. I love this quote because it demolishes false arguments about the translations of the Bible and quotations of the Bible. Many atheists use John 7 and say that was never quoted directly in the Old Testament. And I want to give you, if you want a homework assignment, I would encourage you to do this. Go look at what Jesus says as it is written, out of his inmost being will flow rivers of living water and go find that in the Old Testament. The reason why is it's, it's an errand which will set you on your ear because it's never quoted verbatim like that because that's not how the, the teachers, Jesus Christ, the apostles in the New Testament used the Old Testament. He actually is paraphrasing a grand idea about Ezekiel in Ezekiel's temple that there's this river which is coming out from the temple and at the doors of the temple, there's a tree and it's planted on both sides of the river, and it brings forth fruit. What was Ezekiel doing? He was reading Psalm 1. What was Jesus doing? He was applying Psalm 1 in Ezekiel. He's saying to his people, you want to be that blessed man? Come to me and drink, and you'll be that blessed man. You'll find in me satisfaction for your soul so that you will never thirst again. John seven thirty seven through 39, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, remember what we read in Psalm 1. It was the law of the Lord. Look at what John interprets Jesus's quote here to be. Verse 39, now this he said about the spirit. Whom those, believed, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Therefore, treasuring Jesus Christ as our water, treasuring him as our drink, means recognizing in him that which satisfies our deepest longings and desires. Are you single? Do you want to get married? Do you think that that will answer your greatest longings and desires? Believe me, as a married man, I will tell you it does not. And that in no way, and my wife would not take it this way, that in no way is a maligning of who she is in Christ. She was not made, your future husband, your future wife was not made to satisfy your deepest longings and desires. Or, or else the Bible would preach getting married. It says it's helpful in certain things. It says it's helpful and not helpful in other things. The point is, Jesus Christ says of himself, if you come to me and drink, do you want a better job? 
Do you want a career where you have more authority and power and responsibility? Do you think that that will satisfy your deepest longings and desires? I can tell you as someone who's had many jobs, it won't. The grass isn't greener. Once you get there six months later, it'll be the same. I know. I've moved around enough. Are you looking for a better church? Eventually you'll find problems there too. The point is that we're not told to look for our deepest longings and desires being satisfied in anything other than Jesus Christ. And believe me, you have deep longings and desires which can only be satisfied by knowing God, by his Holy Spirit, flowing through scriptures. By this, by this idea, treasuring Christ, the Holy Spirit flowing through the amazing promises of scripture will constantly refresh the soul with a thousand relevant, specific, meaningful, directly applicable words which will delight your heart and thrill your mind. Last night as I was going off to, to sleep, the, the Holy Spirit reminded me a verse of which I have never intentionally memorized. He said, uh, I, I looked it up this morning, it's in 1 Peter 5, cast your cares upon the Lord. Why? Because he cares for you. And when you, in the moment of need, remember that by the Holy Spirit, it is like a thousand old faithfuls welling up in your soul. It is causing you to come to joy in Jesus Christ. That is what it means to delight in the law of the Lord and to meditate upon it day and night. We were driving on our way home and we saw this little sign in someone's yard and it said Hebrews 13, eight, and it was Jesus Christ is the, yes, is the same yesterday, today, and forever, or tomorrow, just depending on your translation. Do you, are you worried that God's going to change his promises to you? Jesus Christ is the same. He never changes. One thing I've seen, I've been, I've been young and now I've been old, one thing I've never seen is his saints begging for bread. You ever had your bank account get to the point where it's very questionable whether you're going to be begging for bread? The psalmist says he's never seen it. These and a thousand more wonderfully specific, amazingly relevant promises will become, by the power of the Holy Spirit, for you a well by which you commune, commune with Christ. Christ is not to be approached in some theoretical or abstract way. He is to be approached by faith through his word and through remembering and receiving the promises of his word. It's to imitate Jesus Christ in the way that he lived. So this is my aim, that knowing how Jesus Christ defeated his opponents by treasuring and delighting in God's word so much that it was not memorized in head alone, but also treasured by his heart, that by making God's word his joy, let us as well give ourselves to discovering that same well of joy. If you remember, we have said a few times publicly that our theme as a church for 2018 is a renewal of our personal and corporate experience of joy in God's word and in the Holy Spirit. It's because they're two sides of the same coin. Not that the Holy Spirit, who is eternally God, is brought down to the level of the scriptures, but rather that the Holy Spirit speaks through the scriptures and the scriptures are the means by which God's spirit comes to us in everyday moments. And so I would deeply encourage you, give yourself to the reading of God's word this year. 
Don't wait until January 1 to dive back into a, a serious plan to encounter God's word. And even if you don't have a serious plan yet, you can get one. But the point that I want to encourage you is this, is that God will never be found not fulfilling his promises. He will meet you through his word. He will become for you a river of living water. Let's close. Father, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the, the happy man, the joyful, blessed man who, who faithfully read and ate and delighted in and meditated upon your word. We pray, Lord, that you would give us hearts and minds that wish to see your glory and your beauty through your word. And we ask, Lord, that you would help us when we are confused or when we don't understand something, that we would wait upon you, for you are the God who works for those who wait for him. Lord, we pray that you would cause our hearts to well up with a million promises that are relevant in the moment, and that by those promises, we would fight the good fight of faith. In Jesus' name, amen.